when you start breaking down business fundamentals with your eight-year-old, I think he goes, dad, can I please go back to my room and play more video games? Yeah, like, yeah. doesn't that just end the conversation? Yeah. He's like, I was trying to start a bonding moment with you and now <laughs> you're in Excel. Like, <laughs> yeah. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, buddy? What is that from? Oh, I'm bad at that sort of stuff. Oh, is it Fat Something Albert? Something from the 80s. I think it's Fat yeah. Albert. Hey, yeah. hey, hey, hey. Something like that. Oh, man. Mm. Flashback. Flashback. You good, Tay? I mean, I'm battling, right? Third oh. week of sending kids to public school means the whole house is sick. That's just yep. how it works. So. Yep. And especially after this whole time where kids have been like wearing masks on off, you know, that's like it's the immune systems are not what they were either. And you just throw them into a Petri dish. Yep. Ugh, alas. All right. Getting into it. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. Shoot us that listener mail. Please go rate and review the podcast. We love it. I'm going to kick off today with something that's not really necessarily new, but I like the way it was stated this time. You know our uh, our boys over at GMO? Oh, yeah. Grantham. Yes, my there boy. There you go. Grantham is, he's, he's, he's in that category of folks that are often referred to as perma bears because they're always talking about how things are going to crash. It's this is this is the mother of crashes. It's about to start. And when you say it's about to start for five years, you know, it starts... At some point, you're going to be right. You know, broken clock, something about twice a day. And so they came well, out. Hey, with... hey let's, uh, we're, not, can, we're not calling Grantham a broken clock. What has happened is he's very fundamental based. They are very fundamental based. And the fundamentals have said that the U.S. stock market is crazy expensive for a while. And they were, they were saying that. So I respect the perma bear status in this case. It's not just someone going on C. NBC and being like, oh, I hate this, you know, are, are trying to get publicity. Is someone actually doing research and saying the back testing shows as you're going to allude to, right? Yeah, yeah, that is true. I, I, I appreciate you bringing me back to the world of respect. Still, a broken clock is right twice a day. So, <laughs> but no, speaking of which, speaking of the research, so there was this piece, a report that they came out with recently at the end of August or maybe early September, but sometime in the last couple of weeks that I think was pretty cool. It's called uh, Entering the Super Bubble's Final Act is the name of it. If you want to check it out, we'll also put it in the Twitter and on the Substack. Uh, there's There are two points from this that I, I want to highlight because I thought they were pretty awesome. The first is talking about the stages of a super bubble. So he says, first, the bubble forms. Second, a setback occurs. So things start to go down. Third, there's the bear market rally. It's like people don't want to quite give up yet. And and specifically, they said here, what typically happens is that more than half of the loss ends up getting gained. Then fundamentals deteriorate and mm -hmm. everything goes to crap. Like that, That's basically what they said the, uh, the steps are. So they're saying right now we're in the super bubble. And specifically right now, we are in the point where it's the bear market rally stage. Mm -hmm. This is what I... I wanted to throw out for like a little really high level meta history um, of the markets. 
maybe that's an aggressive term, but I'm going to read this. It's kind of long, but I'm going to read this whole paragraph because I, I, I think it's awesome. Most of the time, 85% or thereabouts, markets behave quite normally. In these periods, investors, managers, clients, and individuals are happy enough, but alas, these periods do not truly matter. It is only the other 15% of the time that matters when investors get carried away and become irrational. Mostly about 12%, so 12% of that 15%, this irrationality is excessive optimism. When you see the meme stock squeezes and IPO frenzies, such as in the last two years. And just now and then, about 3% of the time, investors panic and sell regardless of value, as they did at 666 on the S&P in 2009, and with many stocks trading at a P of 2.5 in 1974. These times of euphoria and panic are the most important for portfolios and the most dangerous for careers. It's amazing how precise that is. So they said 12% of the time, it's basically optimism to the extreme and 3% of the time, it's pessimism to the extreme. Yeah. So overall, it's like 85% of the time, it's business as usual, right? That's the 85%. Yeah. And then that remaining 15% is broken into 12% optimism and euphoria and 3% crashing and burning. The thing I liked about this, and you're right, there's some precision going on there, but kind of, not really, right? Yeah. It's just like simple you know, division. The, the thing I really liked about this is the mental model that it paints is super cool. Like it shows how rare these events are, but how important they end up being. And that's these events being the crashes. And that's it's kind of like if you go to Black Swan, which we brought up like a lot of the time, like what Taleb is saying is it's these the rare events make all the difference when they're so big because of the magnitude of them. Because the, that 3% of the time, we're talking 50% plus declines in the market. And that that that's what I thought was super cool. I was like, just the mental model of this thing is awesome. 85%, people happy, don't matter. Other 15% of the time matters. People real happy during some of that 15%, and then people real, real sad during the other part. I liked it. So here's my uh, follow-up. When, when they give you those percentages, they're talking about the market as a whole, right? That's um, right. Do you think those percentages hold true with different individual equities? And then it's accumulation of all that behavior that rolls up? Or is is that just a totally different thing? It, 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 it's a good question. I think it is a, it's a different beast because individual stocks can, like 50% can happen with an individual stock like in a day and then bounce back. And so I think it's a, it ends up being a bit different. Um, if you looked at, I'm making this up. I haven't looked at the data. If you looked at something like some kind of moving average, maybe like a 200-day moving average of individual stocks or something like that, it might follow a similar pattern, maybe, because you, you have to get out some of that daily noise, but but maybe not. I think it mostly matters for the the market as a whole because, because it's like the the crowd mentality is what creates a lot of this. Yeah, um, but the, so my take would be, my off the cuff take would be I think the opposite of that because the crowd dictates the performance of an individual stock too. And so when people freak out about negative news to you know, with one big name, let's pick I mean, let's pick Apple because it's huge, right? Yep. If they don't sell a bunch of iPhones at Christmas, people are gonna freak out. 
and it's not necessarily most of the time it's going to be in that 85 percent range where it's moving along in some you know within one sigma of true value but people overreact and i don't know why they want to overreact with a similar frequency to the market as a whole i think the frequency is what would be different my bet is that the 85 percent for the market as a whole would be much lower for an individual stock interesting there's just a lot of noise i just think there's there's like so much noise that you don't you don't smooth out that noise like you kind of do with the with the market so i think it'd be like half the time it's business as usual 40 percent of the time it's optimism for something like an apple and then 10 percent of the time you know i mean it, it's still maybe proportionately kind of related but that would be my guess i don't know we've looked at the data i think i could probably now that you put this in my brain what i'm probably going to do is look at apple and then I'm going to come back and I'll let you know what the breakdown for like one particular stock is. Uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting. It also, this also kind of hits back to when was it? It was a few months ago. We were talking about the uh, number of days where if you weren't or were invested in the market, like how yeah. big of a difference that would make to your returns because there are a small number of days that make up the good days or the bad days. It flows right into to this as well. I don't know, not the exact percentage, but very related. Yeah, it's funny because we were talking like in that exercise, it was like, man, if you miss the top 10 days, like this is what does your performance. We didn't necessarily put that in verse percentage of trading days. Yeah. But yeah. if you did, um, I think you're going to end up with some similar statistics. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. There yeah. You to GMO. your point on individual stocks, I mean, I think about betas, uh, which for those who don't know, is basically how the stocks uh correlates to the general market and so if you have a beta one the stock largely moves in lockstep with say the s p 500 and then you can have something that's significantly less correlated or significantly more volatile really is the way to say it so that to your point would change that 85 percent range based on the beta of the stock and then as you roll all those up you get to the 85 percent figure so interesting stuff the last thing I, I wanted to pick your brain on is simply that there's something here with how many people actually pay attention to the individual stock too so if you're talking about combining all the emotions of all the actors you can say a large majority of people probably care about the so-called market and a large majority of people probably care about stocks like apple and microsoft but when you get to these smaller names there might only be a hundred thousand people out there that actually care what happens with, uh, you know, the Northwestern grocer that I own. No one cares. Yeah. All right. 10 people. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right. Cause there's, um, that influences the liquidity of the stock. It influences the, the power that like one individual investor could potentially have on the price of that stock. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. I think that does matter. All right. What's in, that, what's in your fishbowl? All right, Deagles. Everyone knows how banks make money, right? Probably not, actually. In the simplest sense, they take the money that I have in my savings account. They loan it out to someone else. And there's a spread there. So let's say, I'll try and use nice round numbers. Let's say I have $100,000 in the bank. Uh, these are going to be crazy numbers based on how typical banks work. Let's say they pay me 1% interest and let's say they loan out that money at 5% to someone to go buy a house, right? That spread 4% is 
they obviously have administrative costs and and other expenses but you take those out and that's largely how traditional uh small town bank is going to make their money pretty simple yep another they'll park their deposits with the federal reserve and that's why the movement of the federal reserve um interest rates are so meaningful for banks because it allows them when it's going up like it has been it allows them to make a higher return on money that's not committed to say someone else's mortgage right so starting on march 16th the fed began to raise interest rates right there's been four increases uh since march 16th of 2022 this company, I'm not going to mention the specific company because this is like talk your book, wrote a breakdown on how much better they are at passing those rate increases along to the average consumer than everyone else. And I just think it's fascinating because it's a really compelling case, but I'm not here to talk specifically about one provider. Uh, I will mention the competitors that they mentioned. So on March 16th, Ally Bank, which is a t- additional high interest uh, savings bank. It's completely online based in Pennsylvania. And Marcus, which is a Goldman Sachs spinoff um, that has been advertising high yield savings. And it's a whole it's a whole thing. Like we could do a case study on that because Marcus loses money like crazy. And it's fascinating that Goldman Sachs doesn't seem to be able to crack the uh, consumer banking segment, at least as of yet. But both of those um, popular High yield savings accounts were at uh, half a percent APY on March 16th. The national average savings account was at 0.12% APY. So roughly. Yep. Okay. On May 4th, the Fed raises rates by another 50 basis points, which is half a percent. Ally raises their interest rates by 10 basis points, 0.1%. And so does Marcus. And the average savings account raises their rates by 0.00%. So they don't pass any of that along. Well, just to make sure I got that exactly right. Yeah. 0.00%? 0.00. Is there another zero following that zero? Yeah, plenty of zeros. <laughs> okay, so at this point, we're talking mid-May. You have your high yield savings at 0.6% or 60 basis points for Ally and Marcus, and your national average at uh, point. One, two. When the Fed raises rates 75 basis points on June 15th, Ally and Marcus both, Ally goes up 10 basis points. Actually, it goes up a little more than that. They go up to basically 1% APY. They're, they're both at 1%. The national average saving rate goes up one basis point, 0.01% to 0.14% APY. Oh my goodness. Uh, this competitor that I will not mention at that point raised their rates uh, 55 basis points. And during the next 75 basis point increase, they raised their rate another 60 basis points. So the whole point here is that some banks can pass along more of the spread than others. And it's fascinating because where you end up in the most recent times is allies at 1.6%. Marcus is at 1.5% and your national average is now at 0.15%, one-tenth of that. I'm going to pick the exact phrase that you pick because I, I assume it was deliberate. You were saying that there are some banks that like are able 
to pass along, meaning that the the banks that don't isn't it's not necessarily like a choice that they're just trying to keep excess profit, but maybe they can't like their administrative costs are too high or something. Or what's what's the deal? No, my personal belief is they can. All right. So if we were rewind to the beginning of the year when the Fed funds rate, uh, hold on, I have it in front of me. I mean, the Fed funds rate, they do ranges, right, was between zero and 0.25 percent. So if you take all the, the interest rates being paid at that time, you have to assume that those banks, at least the large national banks, were operating profitably at that time. And as a matter of fact, Q1 of this year was some of the highest profit figures in banking in at least a decade. Like the banks were doing really well. They were doing really well, even without that, that excess spread. Built but in. but what, wasn't that mostly because of investment returns, not because of their banking operations? Or am I oversimplifying? I think you're oversimplifying. I mean, okay. each bank is so different and complex that it's hard to make a blanket yeah. statement. And and they're like, you know, the JP Morgans and the Bank of Americas are just so big. Wells Fargo is so big that it's hard to say anything. But the rates significantly matter to them. And so when rates rise, they almost overnight make more money on their deposit spreads. The question is just how much of that they're going to pass on to the customer. Now, what seems to have happened is when rates went to zero in the great financial crisis, so like 2008, 2009, banks expected people to put their money elsewhere and they didn't. And so now they seem to be kind of calling people's bluff on the other side because we haven't been in a raising rate environment in a long time to say i don't i don't think you actually park your cash here to make interest i think you park your cash here for convenience so you can buy stuff on apple pay you know so you can do xyz and that's such a interesting hypothesis to me because i think it's really important to make a solid return on cash whether that's in money market funds or just fdi insured high yield savings stuff. So I'm very sensitive to this, but it sounds like I'm in the very slim majority of people who care. Yeah, I think that's interesting. As you were talking there, I was also thinking that convenience is probably a pretty material factor for a lot of folks here. And I also think, love to get your view on this, I also think that there's probably some minimum threshold where people start to think that it matters. I don't know what that is. But and I don't believe this, but I think, you know, I don't know if it's like four percent, five percent. We're like, OK, like that's actually like a return, whereas a shift from near zero to one point five percent, one point six percent might not feel like a return to some people. But so I think you're exactly right. And that's what I'm so fascinated to see if basically my standard convenient savings account makes whatever, point two percent, and I can easily sh shift to something else that gives me the same functionality to make 4%. Obviously, a key part of the calculation is how much cash I have on hand, because if it's a thousand bucks, it doesn't matter. But there's got to be some tipping point here where people go, why, you know, I need this. To your point on convenience, I remember Elon Musk did a breakdown when um, all his European banks had negative savings rates. And he was like, it's horrible. And we don't want to be losing money every month but we can't operate without a bank you know like he was just saying this company needs a bank so there definitely is 
convenience that comes with I mean, so much convenience that people will lose money month over month when savings rate or when interest rates are negative. The psychology of that minimum threshold piece is what's right. It makes sense to me when I think about just the way humans work. And specifically uh, with what I'm about to say, we've talked about mortgage rates here, right? And if someone goes from being able to get a 3% mortgage to being to that mortgage, then being four and a half percent, I think they like feel that like on the Mm -hmm. cost side, that's like really material. But then on the interest rate, like the interest side, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily flick until you get to whatever. Uh, I, I don't know. And again, I'm, this is just like a theory I have right now, but I am curious as you follow this, I, I, I'd love to see what, what you might see because I wonder what that number is. Yeah. So on, I believe it's September 27th, the fed is very likely to raise rates another 75 basis points. That, that's where all indications point. So my high yield savings account, which is currently at 2%, I expect to be in the 2.5 range. Again, if, if my bank of choice here continues to pass along high rates, if I'm at 2.5 and, and everyone else is at, no, well, not me, but you know, if there's great competitors at two point that, to me, the tipping point was long ago, but like, <laughs> yeah. I, I just can't wait to see it because that will, the ramifications of that, assuming that the North America's largest banks actually have to start paying decent returns on interest that will run through their profitability if you go from they're currently at 15 basis points to say even two percent that's a ton of money in the grand scheme of the number the amount of deposits that they're all holding so i don't expect them to do it that is interesting it also i'm not going to go into this because it gets so wonky uh but i'm just throw that headline and we can we can include it on the sub stack if folks want to read it our boy james mcintosh Came out mm-hmm. with an article recently that was talking about the uh, quantitative tightening and how people are discussing inflation so much as like inflation is the is going to be the big variable that leads to the collapse of all the things, you know, if something is. But he's saying what isn't being talked about nearly as much is quantitative tightening, which specifically is taking liquidity out of the system because the Fed is going to stop buying bonds. And so that it to me, when I as you were just talking about. You, you said you don't think they're going to end up raising interest rates there, but I just thought about what happens to banks when the Fed continues what it's doing in quantitative tightening. And if banks do end up raising interest rates, that th- there's a that's not good, <laughs> I think, for the banking system. Yeah, I think it is is the shortest way to do it. Anyway, won't go into more detail there, but I will put that on the sub stack for you. Well, I'll give a shout out for uh, newer listeners to the show like. If you want to pretend that you cornered your finance professor after he had three too many drinks and you go like deep in the nerd weeds of stuff, you should go back and listen to our episode with James McIntyre where we talk about government currencies being digital, allowing for uh, rates to swing negative in a very quick way and some of the ramifications of that. It's a super fascinating but very deep in the weeds topic. And James is kind enough to come on the show and chat with us about it. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. I, All right. I, I just realized that? as I said that, I might as well be wearing like a billboard that says I'm a nerd on my head. Um, we need to move on quick. <laughs> Wait, this, this, you have so many billboards in front of your house at this point. Yeah, I, I brought it out on real estate <laughs> over here. Yeah, exactly. All right. I'm going to dip into the fishbowl and uh, come back to our, our good friend, Jason Swag. 
Zweig? Gosh, I don't know. Anyway, Jason. Jason Z. He had a piece called The Stock Market's Real Inflation Fighters Might Surprise You in the Wall Street Journal. And it like tapped into all of my I love stock market history sensibilities. And so I'm going to share it with y'all. We talked last week about a few companies that have been able to increase sales and they've done it through price increases more so than volume increases, right? And during that time or during that that discussion, you very appropriately brought up pricing power. Like when companies have pricing power, they were able to do this. And there are a bunch of folks out there that are saying that now is the time to invest in companies with pricing power. When you have inflation like this, invest in companies with pricing power because those companies will be able to pass on that price or sorry, the, those prices and then increase their sales. Jason is saying, let's look at one example of high inflation in this country in the past and see whether or not that hypothesis rang true. Now, history does not just repeat, right? Nothing's exactly the same, but it's still interesting to take a look at the example that we have. That example is back in the 1970s when we had stagflation. And stagflation is a term that puts stagnation and inflation together. And so when the economy is not growing, but inflation is really high, they call that stagflation. We don't know if we're in a period of stagflation right now or not, but it's being it's being brought up a whole bunch. The, the period between 1966 and 1982 in the stock market was not positive overall, to put it lightly. There were positive years. So it wasn't that every year in that period was bad, but the year as a whole was bad. Let me jump in with one stat, right? Yeah, come so in. February 9th, 1966, the Dow Jones closed at 995. On August 12th of 1982, that same index was valued at 766. Yes. So over 20% decline in price during a period where inflation was like 7% on average. And that's 16 and a half years, right? (laughs) I mean, it's not fun. If we have 16 and a half years of that performance coming our way, no one's going to listen to the Skippy and Dougal show in 16 years. I can tell (laughs) you how much. Exactly. Exactly. And and the inflation part's important in there because you have, if in your everyday life, prices on average are going up by 7% for 16 years and your investments decline by 20% in aggregate, like, Nowhere is safe. Mm-hmm. So he said, all right, so we've, we get in the context now. That's what that's what this period looked like. And so if people are saying what you should be doing is investing in pricing power companies, what you might be thinking about during this period of time is there was a huge oil spike that happened, the price of oil. Won't go into all the history as to why that occurred, but some ish was going down with OPEC. And so oil went from, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like $4 to $39 or something along those lines. Like it was a really, really big increase. And so you think the oil companies are probably what ruled the day. Nah, 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 my friend, says Jason, according to stock market data. He's not just making this up. So the number, the number one performing stock between 1966 and 1982, which for the record went up by 14,175% during that period. So that's outpacing inflation for the the math whizzes out there. Just barely. Just just barely. Yes, just by a few tens of thousands of percent. Was Tandy Corporation, which then became Radio Shack, 
and Radio Shack, friend of the show, now a crypto company that uh, tweets uh, not safe for work stuff. So be careful when you Google that one. Ten, if we want to complete the thread, Tandy Corp became Radio Shack, became Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> I forgot about that joke. <laughs> anyway that's really uh, inside baseball well, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I, i'm like in the dugout in the corner <laughs> um so radio shack was number one uh number two was a company called o'sullivan corp which is a plastic manufacturer that made rubber shoe heels behind that if you go if you go down like a couple we've got harcourt general which was up over three thousand percent then there was Lowe's, which is like not the uh, hardware store, but the theater and insurance insurance company. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a retailer, House of Fabrics, right? So these these are the types of uh, of companies that were in there. One interesting point that he made around, I think it was around House of Fabrics, I believe, was that they had sewing machines. And they made sewing machines and people couldn't afford to buy clothes anymore. So they were like making and mending their own clothes, which is why. Boom. This, yeah. It's yeah, like inflation got so expensive that I'm going to buy a sewing machine instead of going to buy t-shirts. Ex yeah, exactly. And so high level, what, what this meant for me was, and the, I'm not about to drop any like huge wisdom here, but it's kind of going back to fundamentals, is the company, the stocks that performed the best at this time were not necessarily the pricing power stocks. They were the companies that ended up having good businesses during this time period period again like this is so <laughs> important radio shack was cutting edge leader in computing and i don't know if you even called it microprocessing back then o'sullivan was doing things with plastics that were like plastics was coming of age during yep. this time you regardless of what's happening in the macro environment my personal belief is you could still find micro uh, opportunities usually with great companies or underpriced companies that are going to outperform regardless of what's happening around you. Now, is that harder when the stock market is declining 20% over a 16 year period? I believe it is, but I love Jason's take here because it's important to say that great companies are still going to going to have great performance regardless of what's happening in the macro environment. And I, I like this other point that he makes uh, in the article where he says that like it's it's basically a hindsight is 2020 thing where he went when we look back on this period we bring up stagflation and we talk about the rising oil prices and all this but when you're sitting in 1970 stagflation isn't like a term that's sitting in your head and you're not like this next decade is going to be filled with stagnant you know uh, stagflation and oil prices are going to go up like you don't you don't know all that and so we look at all this hindsight 2020, but at the time, what you do is you say, what are the companies that are likely to perform well during this time? And you look at the fundamentals of the companies and, and you can invest in those. And again, as I mentioned, in aggregate down 20%, but every year was not like a poor performing year. And I love that you, you brought this up a few times. You said, as a value investor, one of the things that helps you to sleep well at night is that even during periods of crap, like if something's cheap, something's cheap, right? Yeah. 1990s Japan you said value investing still worked, right? Mm -hmm. It's it just you. Uh, what is it? I think it's Bill Gurley that always says you just you play the game on the field. Yes, and and that's it. So I lo I love this. I like stock market history, and Jason's always spitting wisdom. And so combining those two things for me just was luscious.
I really enjoyed it too. Thanks for bringing it up. All right, what you got? I want to give a shout out to Kevin on Twitter who wrote this week. Maybe Ireland should unify really quick while no one is paying attention. Does that make you laugh like it makes me laugh? <laughs> having having just read that book about the troubles, yeah, it's it's difficult for me to 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 insert pure laughter. I think into that, but. But it's kind of it. It is kind of like these. These are the times where you go, okay, what can what can we get done? Yeah, in the business environment, you're like, ooh, there's some turmoil with a competitor over there. Uh, can we launch a new product real yeah, quick? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. So the other thing I'd touch on briefly is, um, I saw this study, and I've seen this before, on basically how asymmetric book sales are. So I'm going to just give you a few stats, right? Last year, Ping, Penguin Random House published um, 58,000 uh, titles. And half of those titles, let's call it 30,000, sold less than a dozen books. 12? Yeah. <laughs> just, I just want to be like... 90% really of those titles sell fewer than 2,000 books. A book. I mean, is so you just you have like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and yeah. whatever else, yeah. And the Morgan Housel stuff and you know like the pop psychology stuff that sells and and everything else just doesn't sell at all. People spend yeah. years of their lives writing a book. Can you imagine spending years? This is a good realization for me because I mentioned I want to uh, write a book previously. Like I would spend years of my life, and seven copies would sell. I think it crushed my soul so much work and my son the other day was talking about how he's gonna uh, not ever get a real job and instead just be a youtuber yeah and i was like that don't work right i, I mean i i'm probably as a father I'm, sp I'm probably supposed to say supportive things and loving things and i was like that don't work right and he goes no youtubers are highly successful and i and so i started breaking down business fundamentals with him and the example he brought up, he was like, what about Mr. Beast? And I went, name another one. And that was that was the end of our conversation and perhaps the end of my friendship with my son. But I it's it's like really similar. Right. You have this. I like, just going to say, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's exactly the same asymmetric trends. But when you start breaking down business fundamentals with your eight year old. I think he goes, Dad, can I please go back to my room and play more video games? Yeah, like, yeah, doesn't that just end the conversation? Yeah. He's like, I was trying to start a bonding moment with you. And now <laughs> you're in Excel. Like, <laughs> yeah. You have this discounted cash flow model going. I'm confused. And did you just have this in your back pocket? Like, how? <laughs> uh, you're like, yeah, well, what do you think I was doing last weekend, man? Breaking down YouTube statistics. <laughs> It, uh, you know, you see it in podcasting too. So there's, this is the way that things get popular. And I think by definition, only a few things can be truly popular. Uh, we could talk TV shows. It's like, it's hard to, if, if there was a diverse collection of books, no one would ever get together for coffee and be like, oh, you know what I just read? And then the other person would say, oh, I saw that at the airport and I'm, I picked that up too. You know, like there almost has to be 10 to 20 winners in each category each year. And so I get it, but it, it's just every time I see the stats, they just blow my mind. Yeah. 
yeah it's like one of those things you know but the numbers clarify it in such a way that it's like it's just so vivid i mean a dozen that especially for a book like a dozen well here's the thing so i i just joked that i might write a book and not sell a dozen but Listen, I could go beg a dozen family members to buy my book. Like, I could guarantee that I could sell more than a dozen books, even if they had like poop emojis on the inside. I mean, how do you not sell a dozen books? But here's especially, especially if it has poop emojis on the inside. Here's what I might do if I'm in a really snarky mood at a cocktail party the next time I meet an author. I might go, oh, you wrote a book. Uh, That's great. How many copies did you sell? And just let that silence breathe a little and see if they're <laughs> going to come back and tell me 10, 11. <laughs> I, I wonder what the average like print run to sales ratio is. Right. Because doesn't, doesn't this mean that uh, Pingham Random House is like, oh, yeah, this is a uh, typical book. Give me six copies. There was, there was one point where uh, I helped to publish a book. And I remember uh, talking to like the print house and they're like, so how many copies do you want to print? And we're like forecasting, like you have to get uh, at least right enough, the forecast of what do you think it's going to sell? And so you you don't want to print too much, but you also don't want to have like such a backlog of demand. What the number 12 was not what was in my, (laughs) was not what was in my mind. And so I just like, I'm really curious. Like, is it 500, 1,000? Like, how many copies? And now, what's their basement look like? I imagine this is all driven by the power players, right? If you can guarantee you get your book into all the airport bookstores, the Barnes & Nobles, and a reasonable place on Amazon, I think you could sell thousands of copies pretty easily. But I assume that spot is either paid for or highly negotiated against you know like it, it and then how do the economics behind the scenes like is o- oprah's book club now something that is bought and sold and bargained for because if you get the oprah mention then you get in all those bookstores and that means instead of printing 500 copies you're printing half a million copies yeah and how rigged is that distribution network and by rigged i really mean that kind of preset yeah, another, sorry, a, a random off-the-cuff reaction here. Uh, most of the authors I follow on Twitter will send at least 20 copies to people they respect to try and get a mention, yeah. you know, to try and get someone like Bill Gurley to say, I read this book and it's awesome. So how do you sell less than 12 books? I don't even get it. I think if I'm <laughs> writing a book, I'm buying 50 books myself to give to friends, colleagues, influencers. And then my family's buying because I'm forcing them to like 15 to 20 copies. And then my friend, like, yeah, I think I could sell a hundred copies of a book. Although I might just self finance and pay for the large majority of those challenge accepted by you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Send us some listener mail, skippy at gmail.com. Hit up the Substack for all the articles, the breakdown of Dougal's portfolio, other fun things. And uh, Twitter's at skippy we love uh, reviews of the pod in any form. So send those our way or uh, hit that five-star button on Apple Podcasts, please. Peace. Thank you.